Let's read 1 Samuel chapter 5. Continuing from where Amanda was reading. 1 Samuel 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and they put him back in his place. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against that city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They've brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel. Let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask for God's help to understand this strange story. Father, help us as we come to this story. Help us to see uh, what you have to say to us. Help us to see especially your son Jesus, uh, the victory that he has secured, that he will secure, and the confidence that we can have in him. We pray in his name. Amen. One of the most common themes in the whole Bible, one of the most important themes, is idolatry, idols. In the Old Testament, idolatry usually takes the form of actual religious devotion to physical representations of spiritual beings, like this statue of Dagon that we've just heard about. But in the New Testament, you start hearing more and more about how idols aren't necessarily statues. They're not necessarily statues of Zeus. They're not necessarily statues of the Roman emperor. They can also be things like money. Paul tells the Colossian Christians that covetousness, things like greed and envy, he says that covetousness is actually idolatry. Idolatry treats God's creation like it can give us the security and the happiness that only God the Creator can do. Very few of us, I'm guessing in this room, have ever really had to wrestle through issues around actual classic statue idolatry. 
although there are lots of Christians in lots of places around the world today who still have to deal with all kinds of questions and temptations around this. Uh, I would guess that a lot of us, uh, though, can understand how something like money or sex or status can be an idol. We can look to these things uh, for us to give us our happiness. We kind of get that. That makes sense to us. But our passage today shows us that you can also make an idol out of God himself. You can also make an idol out of God himself. Both Israel and the Philistines, like we often do, they both treat him like he's just another creaturely object to be cajoled and bribed and manipulated at will. We try to cram God into our expectations, into our set of demands for him. We often treat God like he's just a bigger version of ourselves. We reason from what we want, from what we think, to therefore conclude that we know then what God must think and what God must want. We say, well, I'm really loving. Uh, God's even more loving. He's really big. He's a bigger, more loving version of me. Therefore, uh, I know what God would do in his love. He would do X, Y, and Z. But when we do this, we're actually treating God like an idol. And in doing that, we're making God into nothing at all. God has told us through the Bible and climactically in Jesus that it's not that he's just the biggest and the most powerful thing in the universe, but that he's actually infinitely beyond, infinitely above the entire world because he's created all things out of nothing. It's impossible for God to learn anything because he knows everything. It's impossible for God to have any anxiety because it's not just that he knows the entire future, like, oh yeah, I know exactly what's going to happen, but it's even more than that. It's that all time, all things that ever happen are present to him as one total moment. He's present to everywhere, or really, more properly speaking, everywhere is present to him. Every time, every moment is present to him, all in one sense, in one moment. God is infinitely beyond this world. It means that he's totally free, he's totally independent, he's totally self-sufficient. That's the big lesson for us today. Don't idolize God. Don't treat him like he's just one more thing in the universe. Don't box him into your demands and your expectations. In chapter 4, uh, somewhat shockingly, you see his own people, Israel, idolizing him. And then in chapter 5, you see the Philistines idolizing him. We just heard at the very beginning of chapter 4 and the very end of chapter 3 that after a very long period of silence, God is now graciously speaking. He's revealing himself. He's revealing his will to all of Israel through his prophet Samuel by speaking his word. But then the next thing you hear in verse 2 is that Israel gets into a battle with the Philistines. The Philistines, like Israel, were relatively new to the area. Uh, we heard about them at the end of the book of Judges, if you've ever read that before. And you're going to hear about them a lot more in the story of Samuel. They'll continue to be a major thorn in the side of Israel. But we hear that God's own people, Israel, lose the battle pretty handily. 
In verse 3, you hear that the, the elders of Israel, those are the leaders, the trusted um, mentors, the people who are supposed to make important decisions on behalf of the people, you hear them soberly wondering, why has the Lord defeated us before the Philistines? They're asking the right question. They rightly understand that God, Yahweh, the only true God, they understand that He's sovereign over their lives, over the affairs of their community, and that ultimately He's the one behind their defeat. They want to know, what is God doing? What's He trying to get across to us? Why has this happened? This isn't supposed to happen. But they come up with the wrong answer, even though they have the right question. We've just heard that God is now speaking through Samuel as His prophet, but you hear nothing about these devastated elders going to talk to him, going to listen to him. He actually completely disappears from the story for three chapters. Instead, the elders, with this good question, respond by saying this. They say, let's bring the ark of God here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. The people send to Shiloh. They bring from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, which means armies, ironically, who is enthroned on the cherubim. That means mighty angelic beings. That There's little statues of them on top of the ark. Israel rightly realizes that the problem is that God has withdrawn from them in such a way that their victory is no longer ensured. But they think that the ark of the covenant, which like we said last week, is a gold-plated box that contains the Ten Commandments. This box sat in the center, the holiest part of the tabernacle and later the temple. They think that this box, which is a place where God has said, I'm going to dwell there in a special way. I'm going to meet with you in a special way from the top of that box. They think that having that box with them is going to ensure that God will be present among them in power and victory. I mean, isn't this what happened for them back in their glory days? Isn't this exactly what happened when Joshua led their ancestors in victory over the city of Jericho? God said, take the ark, march around the city a bunch of times, and then blow your horns, and then the walls will just fall in, and you can go in and take it very easily. Isn't that what happened back in the glory days? They're wondering. You can see here there's this emphasis on God's committed covenant presence among His people. It says that this is the ark of of His covenant. It's the ark of His desire to be in relationship with His people. It's the symbolic throne where God dwells between the two angelic figures there, like it's His heavenly throne room. And so the people say, let's get the box. Let's bring it among us, they say. The key there is that it has to be with us. They think the problem is that it's not in the right place. If we bring it to the right place, then just like at Jericho back in the good old days, then we will win. That will bend God's power to our victory. Then the narrator tells us in verse 4 something that we should be now well attuned to, something that should cause our ears to perk up. The narrator tells us that the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, are there with the ark. These are Eli's worthless, corrupt, hypocritical sons, the priests that we've been hearing about for the last two chapters, robbing the people, enriching themselves with their position and their power. 
We've already heard God promising that he's going to kill these priests, that he's going to remove their entire family from this blessing of getting to serve as God's priests. And so now you hear that these evil men, these hypocrites, are the ones marching into battle with God's holy ark. And you have no mention of Israel actually consulting God's word. They don't actually go to Samuel. And so you can see that the narrator is hinting that something is woefully wrong. But verse 5, Israel is totally excited. They see the ark there and we hear that they gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. It's shaking. They're so pumped up. Everybody's so confident that this ark is now going to ensure God's powerful presence among them. They've got their fog machines going. They've got the lasers. They've got t-shirt cannons. The F-16s are doing a flyover. They're blasting Queen on 11. Everybody is feeling really good. They're naming it and claiming it. If you were there with them, you would probably think something like what I thought as a college student, and I would look around in church and I'd see all these people really emotional, pumping their fists in the air, crying, weeping, doing all kinds of things, and I would think, wow, these people really love God. They have a lot of faith in God. What's wrong with me? Why am I not like them? Why don't I feel this way? Why am I not so confident in what God's like? I think I probably would have thought that if I was there watching Israel there on the battlefield, getting all pumped up that the ark is there with them. But in a world that places such enormous priority on our feelings and on our personal experience, the narrator is hinting to us, especially with how the story is going to go, the narrator is telling us that we should be really careful about equating confidence, feeling good, positive emotions, we should not equate that with real, genuine faith in God. Those are not necessarily the same thing. We need to have a real, genuine faith that, unlike Israel here, is always based on, always shaped by, always submitted to God's Word. The Israelites are very confident. There's a sense in which you might think, wow, they really believe in God. They're really excited that He's going to win for them. But we know that they aren't actually that interested in God or in his word. The Philistines hear all this excitement. They're terrified. Like Israel, they think that the ark is now going to ensure God's mighty power on behalf of the Israelites. And so they say, a God has come into the camp. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these gods? Uh, ironically, there's a lot of this in these few chapters. There's a lot of irony around the Philistines. Ironically, they kind of sort of understand who God is. They have a halfway decent theology. They know that he's very powerful. They know that he crushed the Egyptians uh, when Israel was coming out of Egypt. But instead of giving up, the Israelite chest-thumping just deepens their resolve. And so they say, take courage, be men, and fight. Come what may, they are at least going to try to defeat the armies of this mighty God who has now shown up in a box. Verse 10, the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And so in spite of what both sides expected, it's a humiliating disaster for Israel. The death toll is more than seven times higher than before. Narrator tells us it was a very great slaughter. 
The two sons of Eli are killed in fulfillment of God's promise about them. But most shocking of all, the ark itself is captured by the godless pagans. It's a total catastrophe. It's an utter reversal of Israel's expectations. A couple centuries later, the prophet Jeremiah would be dealing with a similar kind of false confidence. By that point, Jerusalem had a majestic temple where they housed this same ark. And then in Jeremiah's day, a couple centuries down from here, at that time, the leaders of Israel thought that the presence of the temple, this big imposing building, they thought that that building would ensure their safety, even though their behavior showed that they were very far from God, very uninterested in listening to His Word. And so God tells them through the prophet Jeremiah, this is in Jeremiah chapter 7, God says, amend your ways and your deeds, and I'll let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. You see, the people were pointing to this big building. They're saying, well, God told us to build this. This is God's house. God lives here in a special way. We're His people. Of course we're safe. What could go wrong? And God's saying, don't trust in the words. Don't just say, look, we've got the building, we've got the building, we've got the building. A few verses later in Jeremiah 7, God says that the temple has actually become a den of robbers which Jesus, of course, will later pick up on as he angrily clears out the Jerusalem temple. Now, again, experiencing the same problem. Once again, the temple in Jesus' day had become an object of false, presumptuous confidence for a people and for a leadership who were not actually interested in listening to God. That's why Jesus goes in to the temple and he's filled with rage over what they're doing, ripping the people off, stealing from the poor, cheating them with their money. And so we need to today still be really careful about making an idol out of God. We need to be really careful about presumptuous confidence in the things of God. We need to be careful that we don't ignore God's Word by cramming Him into a box of our own demands and expectations. We need to be careful that we don't presume on His power and His presence and His kindness, especially if we are refusing to let God's Word actually rule us and shape us and challenge us. We need to be careful about using the name of God or the language of the Bible or uh, even just the name of the Holy Spirit to baptize what are actually just our own desires and our own ideas. Israel, somewhat understandably, Israel put their confidence in the ark. We don't have an ark anymore today. It's disappeared. But today, we need to be careful about putting our confidence even in things like our baptism, in our knowledge of theology, in our church attendance, even things like our prayer life, rather than putting our confidence in God Himself. We need to be careful that we're not trying to use religious activities like it's a kind of invoice to serve to God and say, okay, look at what I've done for you. Please pay me now. Please give me what I want. I'm doing what you want. We need to be careful about thoughtlessly attaching God, attaching Jesus and His name to our political causes and our political protests, no matter which tribe we're in or how passionately we feel about it. Israel idolized God, and they faced a humiliating reversal. 
And so now in verse 12 and following, you hear about two different reactions to this reversal. First, you have Eli's reaction where you see the fulfillment of God's somber promises to him over the last couple of chapters about coming judgment for him and his family because of their moral and spiritual apathy. He's now very old. We hear that he's totally blind and that he's morbidly obese, probably because he's been long enjoying the moist brisket that his sons have been stealing from the people. The people have gone off to battle, and now Eli is back there, hardly able to move, but he's trembling. He's terrified about what might happen to the ark in the battle. And when he hears the anguish of the town, he can't see what's happening, but when he hears the people screaming out, he asks this messenger what's happened. You notice in verse 17, the messenger goes from bad to worse. He saves the worst news for last. He says, Israel has fled. There was a great defeat. Your two sons are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. And so his worst nightmare has come true. The holy ark of God has somehow fallen into the hands of God's enemies. And you notice that it's when Eli hears this, not even when he hears that his own sons are dead, it's when he hears that this worst possible news, it's that he, when he hears about the ark getting captured, that he falls over and he breaks his neck under the weight of all the extra pounds that he's been gaining through his family's corruption. Like his life and his ministry, his death is a farce. God's word of judgment has come true. In verse 19, you hear about another reaction to this humiliating reversal. Now we've zoomed in on Eli's daughter-in-law. Horrified and shocked to hear about the death of her husband, and worst of all, about the ark. She goes into premature labor. So much death in this story, and now she too is dying. The midwives try to revive her by giving her the good news that she's about to have a son, but it's not enough. She doesn't respond. But with her last breath, she's named her child Ichabod, which in Hebrew means, where's the glory? Where's the glory? This nameless female amateur theologian understands that the capture of God's ark at some level means that the glory has departed from Israel. Literally, it says that the glory has gone into exile from Israel. This will become a very important word and theme as the Old Testament goes on. She says it two times. She's echoing what happened to Adam and Eve, getting exiled out of the garden, going east. And it's foreshadowing Israel's own humiliating exile as they get sent into the east, into Babylon, by the end of the Old Testament. And so far worse than the military loss, as bad as it is, far worse even than the family deaths, as bad as those are, the glory of God has gone away from His people. The glory of God has left Israel. It's an abysmal disaster for Israel and apparently for Israel's God. This dying mother understands in a better way than just about anybody we've met in Samuel so far. She understands the horror of what's been happening. The horror of what happens when God turns his face away from his own people when their refusal to listen to him brings about moral and spiritual rot. But it's not the only reversal. We learn in chapter 5 that the free and almighty God of Israel remains 
just as powerful as ever, appearances notwithstanding. Israel thought that their God was defeated, and now you see that the Philistines also think that he's defeated. Like Israel, they idolatrously think that wherever the ark is, wherever the box is, their God must be also. And so they take the ark and they place it into the temple of one of their own gods, the god Dagon. The Philistines believed in lots of gods, like just about anybody in the ancient world. They all celebrated diversity. The more gods, the better. The more religions, the better. Let's just bring them all together. We can all get along. And so they were happy to integrate Israel's god into their own religion. Uh, They take Israel's god, and they want to bend him into their own service, now as the subject of their much mightier god, Dagon. So they stick the box into Dagon's temple, and the next morning they're surprised to find that the statue of mighty Dagon, who gave them their victory, has now fallen face down before the ark of Yahweh, Israel's god. You see, Dagon now is in a position of submission, even worship, before Yahweh. And so the Philistines, uh, somewhat uh, humorously, maybe chalking it off to a bit of a fluke, uh, they pick up their god and they say, let's help our god. Let's put him back up where he belongs. This, of course, is supposed to show you how ridiculous it is to trust in things, to put your hope in things that need our help. Uh, But then the next morning, he's fallen down again. Uh, But this time, he's not just laying there on his face. His head and his hands, it tells us literally, are chopped off. They thought that they had defeated Yahweh, but the free and the mighty God of Israel, who let Israel be defeated, even though his ark was there, he let his ark get captured, he's forcefully showing that he has decisively defeated the apparently mighty Dagon. The Philistines' God has been humiliated, and now God's going to humiliate them. Look at verses 6 and following. We hear that the hand of the Lord was heavy, against the people of the town of Ashdod. This is important uh, in the story. The the Lord chopped off Dagon's hands, making him powerless. He can't do anything if you don't have any hands. But then you hear a few times throughout the rest of this chapter that the hand of the Lord is strong, or the hand of the Lord is heavy. It's the same word. This word heavy is the same word that was used to describe how Eli was really overweight. He was heavy. But it's also the same word that's behind this language of glory. Because the Hebrew word for glory has to do with weightiness. It has to do with something being significant and important, immovable. When we say God is glorious, we're saying he's heavy. He's important. It's the same word used all throughout here. It says God's hand is heavy against the Philistines. He's pressuring them in judgment. Wherever the ark goes, his hand of power and of pressure goes with it. In the first town, he terrifies them by afflicting them with tumors, probably hemorrhoids, And so the people say, get the ark out of here. No more. We can't take it anymore. In the next town, God turns up the pressure. He afflicts them all with the same tumors. But now you also hear that there's a very great panic. And so everybody in Gath is running off to Costco. They're taking all the toilet paper. They're in fistfights over the preparation H in the aisles. And so once again, they take the hot potato of God's ark and they toss it to the next town which now we hear is experiencing not just a great panic, but a deathly panic. It's getting worse and worse and worse. And so they decide, let's send it back to Israel, to its own place, that it might not kill us and our people. 
And again, we're reminded the hand of God was very heavy there. And in this very odd echo from the beginning of Exodus, the beginning of Exodus, when you read that the enslaved Israelites cry out to God and their cry rises up to heaven, we have an echo of that here where we hear that the cry of the Philistines goes up to heaven. It's ironic, isn't it? The Philistines experiencing their own pandemic. Even the Philistines cry out to God for mercy. How few of our own leaders and rulers have cried out to God, repented over their sin in the last year and a half. We just think this is a technical problem, a scientific problem, a financial problem. Just throw money at these things. Just throw experts at these things. No problemo. At least the Philistines knew God had something to do with it. Like the Israelites, the Philistines thought they could control God. They thought that they could shove him into this little box of their own demands. They thought that they had humiliated him. They thought that they had conscripted him into their own service in spite of their spiritual corruption. But God showed them that he would not and he could not be defeated. He remains just as glorious as ever, just as heavy as ever. He tolerates no opposition, whether that opposition comes in the form of Israelite presumption or in the form of Philistine scorn. God will be victorious over all his enemies, whether they're claiming to be among his own people or not. If you trust in God, that should greatly encourage you. God is going to win. Ultimate Goodness will triumph in the end. But if you are living apathetically or defiantly toward God, this should greatly sober you because you cannot get away with it forever. God may appear to be weak and limited and powerless, but He always remains glorious, powerful, and free. And the cross of Jesus showed that most brilliantly. What was more humiliating and shameful than God's own king, who claimed to be God himself, being publicly nailed to a cross, suffocating naked for hours on end in front of the whole city? What kind of God gets himself killed like that? Who looked like the winner when Jesus was screaming in agony. Not him. The Romans look like the winners. Jerusalem's leaders look like the winners. Not Jesus. Not God. But it was actually through the cross, it was actually through Jesus bearing God's judgment on our behalf that he was actually achieving his greatest victory over our greatest enemies. Sin. Death. The devil. His resurrection from the dead a couple days later was God's triumphant declaration that Jesus, just like the ark and the temple of Dagon, that through this apparent humiliation, Jesus had actually decapitated and disarmed the false and the oppressive forces of this world. And so if not even sin or death could limit the power and the freedom of God, why should we? Let's worship Him. Let's listen to Him. Let's do what the end of Psalm 2 told us to do. Let's take refuge in Him.
ready to give it. Let's pray. Father, help us to take refuge in your king that you have installed on Zion, your holy hill. Help us to take refuge in Jesus in spite of his apparent humiliation and silliness in the eyes of the world. Give us the eyes of faith that know that he is your victorious king. Help us to really have confidence in the resurrection of Jesus in spite of whatever disappointments and failures and sufferings we face in this world. Help us to show through our confidence in you, through our faith in your word, that you really are the God of the living. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.